What should we make of Eloy Jimenez's new deal? How about Corey Knable's sore elbow? We'll talk about those stories and more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March the 22nd. It's my anniversary and show number 12 of the 2019 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday news and comment edition for you. We'll have Harold Nichols with player news from the National League, including the Milwaukee bullpen, the Pittsburgh infield, the Cincinnati batting order, and more. And we'll have Harold Nichols again with news from the American League, including a big league deal for Eloy Jimenez, surgery for Michael Fulmer, and an injury in the Yankees' bullpen. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our frequent flyer commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Miami starting pitcher Caleb Smith. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about my Tout Wars American League only auction. It's another big Friday news and comment edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The regular season is underway, and Domingo Santana and Hunter Strickland are really climbing those ADPs. We gotta talk some baseball. So did you get up at 6 o'clock in the morning Eastern Time on Wednesday to watch the Mariners and the A's in Tokyo? I sure did, and I was rewarded when my first pitcher of the year, Mike Fires of Oakland, gave up a grand slam to Domingo Santana. Santana was already something of a tout darling, and he's really been climbing up the ADP board since his big fly. So has Hunter Strickland, who got two saves and two tries for the Mariners, and has seen some growth in his draft stock as a result. Are these overreactions to a couple of games? Well, I'm going to guess that Domingo Santana is the better bet of the two, but I do know that Mike Fires and his owners, including me, were opening day's big losers. In the first inning of this Friday news and comment edition, our Market Watch player news reports, Jock Thompson is off lounging on a beach somewhere, so Baseball HQ analyst Harold Nichols is doing double duty on the Market Watch, In a few minutes, he'll have news and analysis from the American League, but right now it's the National League Report. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Did you take a lozenge before we start? Because you got double duty this morning. Uh, Yeah, I did one, huh? (laughs) (laughs) All right, ready to roll. My uh, daughter has a friend or had a friend when she was a a much younger girl, and the, the friend called them lozengers. She would, I have a sore throat. Can I have a lozenger, please? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> a lozenger. Uh, Corey Knable, the relief pitcher in Milwaukee, their closer, apparently dealing with some elbow soreness, Nick, and uh, nobody likes to hear that about a pitcher. And it's serious enough that manager Craig Council said there's reason for concern. Tom Kephart covers the Brewers for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. And Tom noted that Jeremy Jeffers is already sidelined, so does Josh Hader become the best bet for saves on what a team that should have a, a lot of wins to save? Well, Nibble's Chandler elbow and uh, uh, Jeremy Jeffers' shoulder issues have left Milwaukee searching for alternatives. And I, I actually saw late last night, I believe, that Nabel, uh, they, they admitted he's got a tour in UCL. Uh, not completely torn, so they're not sure yet exactly what's going to happen, but it doesn't sound good. Uh, Josh Hader was often used in multiple set, uh, inning setup and uh, middle relief roles last season. 
He will seemingly see more ninth inning action unless Milwaukee adds to its bullpen core through a free agency or through a trade. Uh, Hader displayed uh, markedly improved control in 2018, boosted his, his dominance, boosted his swinging strike rate to historically elite levels, and became a really dominant late inning force. Uh, veteran release pitcher Matt Albers looms as a potential sleeper saves option as well, if both Nabel and Jeffers are sidelined for lengthy periods. Uh, Albers was felled by a shoulder ailment in June last season after showing similar skills and stats in his early season sample, as he had displayed when posting career best stats and skills in 2017. And he struggled when he act- was activated later in the year after was on the disabled list for about seven weeks. So uh, he could have value if he comes back fully healthy. Nick, the Brewers have been publicly linked with star free agent closer Craig Kimbrell. What happens if he signs in Milwaukee? Well, that's an indication clearly that the team is really worried about Nabel and a sign that this might be a very serious injury issue for him. Uh, it would mean the Brewers would uh, maintain their past pattern of using Hader in a multi-inning high-leverage role, which seemed to be what they preferred last season. So more holds, more strikeouts than if Hader were made into a one-inning closer, but obviously uh, a lot fewer saves. And a lot less value because saves are such an important part of the value situation. Um, I read something the other day about uh, uh, Craig Kimbrell possibly signing in Milwaukee, and uh, uh, the story said that now the Cubs are getting in on uh, talking to Craig Kimbrell as well, partly to alleviate their own closer situation with Brandon Morrow on the shelf. Now Pedro Strope is on the shelf, but also to keep him out of Milwaukee's hands because they're very tough rivals in that National League Central. Right, and certainly that's something that that's a, an important consideration. I mean, the Cubs have a need. Uh, it, it looks as though Morrow is progressing perhaps faster than they expected, but certainly for the first month of the season, they're going to be without a closer. And certainly, uh, Kimbrel signing in Chicago would totally flip things around in that pen as well. So uh, it could be an interesting week as we see how this uh, whole thing works out, and the, and the agents are undoubtedly having a field day. Nick, do you get the impression from watching how these uh, contract negotiations are going, the teams are basically going more stars and scrubs? In the last couple of weeks, we're going to talk about Eloy Jimenez got a big contract. Uh, Mike Trout, of course, got the biggest contract ever. We've seen uh, Manny Machado and Bryce Harper earlier getting giant contracts. But all the other players seem to be not getting the kind of huge offers that we maybe have become accustomed to, and certainly they have. And I'm thinking of closers, and I wonder, Nick, if you think as I do, that teams are just getting smarter about this and realizing from the Oakland example that closers are really made, not born. Yeah, you know, I think they may be getting smarter about that. And we're, we may be seeing a shift away from the traditional uh, career-long closer kind of thing, such as Craig Kimberl is, uh, to, uh, you know, a, a guy who can throw over 100 miles an hour and, and let him throw that way for two years until he blows his arm out. And at the same time, get some good, good uh, closing out of it. I, I think they are headed that direction and realizing that a lot of guys can close out games. It's the high leverage situations when somebody's got the bases loaded and nobody out that you really need uh, a top reliever for. So I think we could see a real shift in that entire pattern over the next few years. And if we do, boy, what an impact it'll have on fantasy baseball because, you know, we, we, we spend so much time at draft worrying about when am I going to take my closer, where am I going to get my 30 saves, and all of a sudden, if, if most teams are spreading the saves around between four or five pitchers, 
that that whole value picture really goes up uh, on its head. It does indeed. I mean, I, I wonder if we're reaching a point uh, in fantasy baseball where we need to reconsider how we're going to score our pitching categories because, um, you know, we, we've got uh, teams using openers. And what happens if you take a, uh, a Diego Castillo, for example, and assume he's going to be a reliever and he winds up opening all season? And your, uh, your, your rules say that the guy who opens is a starter. So what does that do for you? And then you've got this starter who's going to pitch 60 innings all season, you know? Uh, a lot of strikeouts in the 60 innings, but not a lot of innings. So I think we may need to reconsider how we're configuring the entire pitching thing in fantasy baseball as these changes are happening in, in Major League Baseball. Well, Nick, I was at the Tout Wars last weekend, and one of the discussion points that was coming up when the topic of the, the opener was raised is, what do you do in leagues where you have sort of minimums or maximums for starts? Do these guys going an inning or an inning and a third or whatever it is from the start of the game, do those count as starts? And if they do, what, how do you classify the guy who pitches the four or four and a third innings afterwards, the bulk innings guy, they call him? If you have a starts limit, that is, you can only have so many starts in a year, those openers would be really valuable, and the guys behind them would be really valuable because they're racking up innings without getting starts. And meanwhile, the guys at the start of the game, if you have a starts minimum, uh, are really valuable because they're getting these false starts, basically. Right. I mean, it, it really it really brings into question a lot of the rules that we've developed in fantasy baseball. And I think we're going to have to see some really creative adaptations over the next few years uh, in, in terms of how we're dealing with the entire pitching situation. Well, one of the things we look at, Nick, in uh, spring training is we try to assess the playing time situations on various teams and in Pittsburgh they've solidified their situation in part of their infield anyway uh, at third base and shortstop by naming uh, Zhang Ho Zhang and Eric Gonzalez to start at third base and shortstop respectively. Rick Green covers the Pirates for playing time today. What's the story in Pittsburgh with with these two announcements? Well Zhang Ho Zhang impressed the brass in Pittsburgh with his power five home runs this spring uh the, but, but beware that those were his only hits of the spring. Uh, five for 28, 13 strikeouts. Uh, that's not impressive to me. I mean, a good power, but I would worry as we get into uh, uh, into the season with that kind of, of background. Uh, the Power Hungry Pirates opted for the threat of the home runs uh, over Moran, who did nothing uh, to stand out in the spring actually either, six for 28. So it remains to be seen how Zhang will, fire, will fare once he gets full-time duty after he's been missed really two seasons in Major League Baseball. At shortstop, the Pirates opted for their offseason acquisition, Gonzalez, over their former first-round pick, Newman. Neither one, again, did much at the plate to impress. Gonzalez went 7 for 30, Newman 8 for 29. Uh, Pittsburgh seems to remain convinced that Gonzalez can be an everyday shortstop, but he looks like a B.A. drag with a terrible eye, 0.13 I. On the bright side, could have some stolen bases with 121 speed. So the decision to go with Gonzalez leaves Newman and Pablo Reyes fighting for a utility role to open the season. 
Yeah, I was not impressed with uh, Zhang's uh, five home runs because he had no other hits, as you said. And 13 strikeouts in 28 uh, plate appearances, like a 50% strikeout rate is not going to get you far, even if you can hit the occasional home run. I, I know that there's the Chris, Drake, Chris Davis types, uh, three true outcomes. But at a certain point, doesn't Pittsburgh have to look otherwise? And does this mean that Colin Moran, who has had flashes of pretty effective production from a fantasy perspective, might be somebody to stash away on your reserve? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I don't think, you know, you got a guy like Chris Davis, he'll hit 250, and that's fine. But a guy who's going to strike out half the time? Oh, come on. Uh, that's going to that's gonna lead to some very bad situations in games where the home run would be nice, but uh, maybe you just want to just move some guys along and, and stay out of a, uh, out of an out in a time when you've got two guys on base and need to get them in scoring position. So I think that uh, they're not going to be happy with Zhang Ozhang if – if he continues with a 50% strikeout rate. Another question that smart fantasy owners look at in spring training is how the teams are going to stack up their batting orders. And as we get towards these last 10 days or so, these batting orders should be falling into perspective. And one question is still in Cincinnati, where they don't seem to have anything settled in their leadoff slot. And they're going to score runs, Nick. So who leads off in Cincinnati could be really, really important. Uh, Ryan Bloomfield, our speculator columnist, looked at Cincinnati's options in a column he called Spring Training Tea Leaves. What does Ryan Bloomfield see in that uh, top of the order in Cincinnati. I think this is a really interesting interesting perspective that Ryan Broomfield brought to this because you're right. Whoever's at the top of that lineup is going to score a lot of runs. Uh, it really has, as, as Ryan says, major fantasy implications. Jose Peraza, who led off for the club 50 times last year, would stand to lose the most if he drops further in the, in the batting order. Uh, not only would he see fewer plate appearances, but it might affect the uh, upside of 35 stolen bases that we were talking about in the forecaster. Uh, Peraza has excellent raw speed, but a declining uh, SB stolen base opportunity percentage for the last two seasons. And if he's pushed further down the order, that could drop even further. Uh, if that happens, his loss in terms of not being the uh, the uh, leadoff guy could be a major win for two kind of speculative players at this point in the season. Uh, Nick Senzel and Jesse Winker. Uh, Winker is one of just four hitters. And this was really amazing to, to think about this. Four hitters, minimum 250 at-bats, to have more walks and strikeouts, a 20% line drive rate, and a 100-plus expected power index last season. The other three were Jose Ramirez, Alex Bregman, and Joey Voto. Uh, so that, that puts Winker in some fairly amazing company. Uh, and interestingly enough, I see Winker slipping in some drafts. So a guy to look at if you're drafting this weekend his on-base ability could uh, net him the leadoff gig, though he's not a major stolen brace threat. Uh, he'll be further removed from major shoulder, shoulder surgery by opening day, so there could be a potential power strike that might uh, complement already elite uh, plate skills. So I like Jesse Winker a lot going into the season, whether or not he makes gets that uh, that's that uh, leadoff gig. Uh, the second possibility behind Peraza is a top 10 prospect on this year's HQ 100, uh, Nick Sinzel. Hasn't stayed healthy enough to prove anything in the majors, despite a very intriguing power-speed combo and solid on-base skills. He is the eventual favorite for Cincinnati's center field job, uh, despite, but he did have another spring injury, a hamstring injury, and certainly is some uncertainty over the service time thing. Will they will they keep him down until they get this service time manipulated? Uh, but Winker is our short-term hedge, I think, to lead off a healthy Sinzel. Home run, stolen base upside could make him even more profitable as we move into the season. 
uh, the winner of that leadoff gig, particularly if it's Senzel or Winker or Peraza, should get a real fantasy boost. And I should say, uh, you, you said Winker is a, a good player, but there's not a lot of stolen base possibility there, right? Right, very definitely. He'll get on base a lot and probably score a lot of runs if he's in that leadoff spot, but not a lot of stolen base upside from Winker. Correct. In San Diego, the Padres rotation came into a bit clearer focus, uh, unfortunately, by the injury route. Jacob Nix has been shut down entirely because he's have, suffering some soreness in his right arm. Uh, that seems to get him out of the picture for the time being. And uh, according to playing time tomorrow, and Jock Thompson covers the uh, that division, the rotation possibilities include an end gamer, Robbie Erlin, uh, who also was covered in the, St- the Stephen Nickrand pitching buyer's guide. Right. Well, the, you know, the, the rotation, at, for the moment at least, uh, is is kind of in focus. And what Jock says, and I think this is well to keep an eye on it, is that what is their starting rotation to begin the season may not be their final rotation as we get further into the season. But uh, Jacob Mix, as you said, shut down with right arm soreness, underwent tests on his elbow on Friday, March the 15th, with no obvious structural damage, and so that's good. The team is hopeful he can resume throwing at some point during the upcoming week. Uh, but not great news for the Padres at this point uh, because Nick's had a real shot at the opening day rotation at the start of spring training. Even so, we'd knocked him down, his innings down last week based on his spotty spring performance. He uh, gave up six walks over 6.2 innings pitched, uh, a walk in inning, and that's not a good thing to see anytime, and especially in the spring. So no more adjustments until we learn more. The rotation right now looks like Joey Lucchese, Chris Paddock, Matt Strom, uh, Lauer, and Erlen. But as Jock says, uh, volatility seems to be the byword in this. Uh, I would not count on that remaining the rotation uh, for long, perhaps not even for the first month. I was intrigued by Robbie Erlin uh, before the season started. And when uh, I read Stephen Nickran's Bayer's Guide column for starting pitchers, I was also more interested, if anything. He put up some pretty interesting skills in 2018. He did. 7.3 DOM, uh, 1.0 control. 47% ground ball rate, 129 BPV for Robbie Erland. So that's really, really very, very good. Uh, and if you check out his BPV trend over his five seasons in the majors, 67, 81, 92, 109, 129. So here, here's a guy who's clearly been growing at a steady rate since he came into the major leagues. He's got three separate off-speed pitches that generate strikeouts, including a cutter that he added in 2018. Uh, filthy against right-handed batters in 2018. 8.1 command against right-handed hitters. Uh, has the potential for a mid-3 ZRA, uh, even though he only has a 90, 90-ish uh, mile-per-hour fastball. Yeah, Robbie Erlin, I think, could be a sneaky good pick. Uh, uh, and unfortunately, he's one of those kind of pitchers, Nick, that has been portrayed in the uh, tout media as a sleepy, sneaky pick that now everybody knows about him, and he's not a sleepy, sneaky pick anymore. That seems right, to be right, the, yeah. the guy. The guy who might be a sleepy, sneaky pick for me in that San Diego rotation is Matt Strom. Uh, he's, uh, the press has all gone to Chris Paddock this spring. Matt Strom has had a strong spring as well and could wind up uh, doing very, very well in that rotation. Finally, also in San Diego, uh, they have an outfield situation that's kind of in flux, and Fran Mil Reyes could be worth a look in the end game. Uh, Stephen Nickrand again doing double duty with the batting buyer's guy, took a look at Fran Mil Reyes, and he liked what he saw. Yeah, Fran Mil Reyes uh, posted some of the better exit velocities among National League bats in 2018. 
Uh, he's another young bat that got better as the season went along. Struggled to make contact early on. 4% walk rate, 58% contact rate, uh, 0.10i. Just He was hitting home runs, but not making much contact when he first came up. And, you know, you kind of looked at him and went, ah, another one of these guys. But his plate skills really soared in the second half. 11% walk rate, up from that 4%. 76% contact rate, 0.49i. Uh, contact this spring has been improved uh, as well. Uh, so he's got 30 home run uh, home run upside. He's going to have to loft the ball more. Um, 49, 21, 30 ground ball, line drive, fly ball rate in 2018. So far in the spring, uh, two ground balls for every fly ball. So he's got to get the ball in the air more. But once he does, uh, this is a guy who could generate some home run power. Yeah, that's something you're always looking for is those big exit velocities and the, and the skill that's missing is the ability to get the ball up in the air where it can do some damage. But, you know, hard-hit ground balls aren't such a bad thing. They help batting average for sure because they get through the infield more quickly. So it's it's not a complete loss to have a guy who just hits the ball hard because while you're waiting for the power to develop, maybe you get some other benefits as well. You know, he's, he's on base, he's driving in runs, he's scoring runs, you know, those kind of things. Right, yeah, very definitely. I mean, the only the only thing about the, the ball on the ground is uh, it makes you vulnerable to a shift if it's all all the time going in the same uh, in the same location. Well, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out with the National League. And ordinarily, this is where we'd bid you adieu and talk to Jock. But uh, as I mentioned, Jock Thompson is on a top secret mission in some undisclosed location. So uh, we're fortunate that you're standing by, ready with the American League report as well. Uh, you are ready. I'm ready. I am ready. Thank you. As I mentioned earlier, Nick, uh, the White Sox made a somewhat surprising announcement in that they've signed outfielder super prospect Eloy Jimenez. He's Baseball HQ's number two prospect for 2019, behind only Vladimir Guerrero Jr., and he's got a six-year contract extension. Uh, They'll buy out some of his uh, free agent years, his arbitration years. And normally we don't care that much about contracts at Baseball HQ, but this case is different. And Rick Green covers the White Sox for Baseball HQ and playing time today. What's the story going on here with the Eloy Jimenez signing? Well, the actual extension right now is waiting on a physical, but that should really be, in this case, a formality. Uh, The guy's been playing all through spring training and we haven't heard anything, so probably he's in good shape. Uh, Once the deal is finalized, the huge change for fantasy owners is when he arrives onto the White Sox roster. Uh, they sent him to minor league camp ostensibly to help him work on his defense, but obviously so they could delay the start of his service time clock uh, and extend the time when they had him under cost control. With the extension, there's no incentive to keep him in the minors. I mean, uh, that means we really could expect him perhaps to arrive in the majors on opening day and to be in the starting lineup on opening day. But Nick, the team told us that it was because he needed to work on his defense. Could they have been uh, hedging the truth a little bit on this score? Maybe just a little bit. I, you know, I mean, uh, uh, the, the service contract thing, the control that, that teams have over young players is really important. I mean, especially unless you've got a ton of money that you can spend, uh, having an extra year of control over a very talented young ball player is very important. And by signing this contract, the White Sox have gotten rid of that, uh, that uh, contingency. Well, if he starts on opening day versus having to wait through uh, whenever the uh, period is to get that extra year of control, how big of a difference are we talking about? It's really big. Uh, Our HQ team analysts immediately bumped his playing time by 20%. 20%, that's a huge jump. An extra 100 plus at bats, 
Uh, that takes him from a high teens hitter and dollar value to a mid-20s hitter. Uh, he's not going to steal any bases, but this guy could get 20-plus home runs, 75 runs, 85 RBIs, and more importantly, hit around 300. And that's huge in this current, the current environment. Yeah, anybody who can hit 300 in a lot of at-bats has huge value because he drags the entire team average up with him. And interestingly enough, if you have one of those guys, whether you play in a batting average league where you add a 300 hitter or an on-base league where you add a 390 type or 400 type uh, on-base guy, it really sets a foundation for your whole team because the arithmetic is, moves in your favor and it allows you to go out and reach in, an, in a batting average league for a guy like Joey Gallo whose 40 home runs look very attractive, but you can't really afford his 220 batting average. If you've got a guy who's hitting 300, now all of a sudden between the two of them, you're still looking at you know, 260-ish for your team, which nowadays will get you near the top of the table in batting average. A guy like this who gets big batting average or on-base scores in a lot of uh, at-bats or plate appearances has not only the value of getting all those hits for you, but also the value that he adds to the team ratio. Right, absolutely. So that uh, that that becomes, it really is a big deal in today's environment to have uh, one guy or two guys or three guys or more on your team hitting close to three hundred. Sad news out of Detroit to Nick, like the Tigers need more sad news. Right-hander Michael Fulmer has had a third opinion about his elbow problems, and now he's scheduled for Tommy John surgery. That's going to take him out for this season and a good chunk of next season as well, we would expect. Tom Kephart covers the Tigers for playing time today at Baseball HQ. What is this sad team going to do to fill their now gaping hole in their rotation? Well, the news changes some opportunities in the rotation, especially for veteran lefty Daniel Norris and rookie right-hander Spencer Turnbull. Both of them were in battle for rotation spots, and Turnbull now seems assured of opening the season in the rotation. Turnbull had four appearances, three as a starter, as a call-up last September. Looked pretty good in 16 innings, getting uh, 15 strikeouts against only four walks. Uh, Also posted 133 strikeouts in 119 minor league innings last year uh, against uh, with fewer than 50 walks. So uh, Turnbull looks like he could, could have a decent shot at doing something in the rotation. Norris still has a chance for a rotation spot, uh, but the HQ depth chart really has him six right now behind Tyson Ross. So he'll likely open the season in long relief. Uh, Norris showed skills growth in 2018, including a career high Dom rate of 10.4 strikeouts per nine innings, uh, even though he had some decreased velocity. Yeah, I'm interested in this Turnbull guy. He crossed a lot of levels in minor league baseball last year, which is always a good sign that the organization is moving him quickly. On the other hand, it is the Tigers, and they have a desperate need for pitching, so maybe they're just pushing everybody up that they think. Uh, When we're looking at Norris, uh, I don't know that I'm sold. I've looked at him in the past, and you know, in past years, I can remember a lot of uh, experts and touts saying, keep your eye on Daniel Norris, and it never has seemed to pan out. Right, it's never really panned out, and you know, I've, I've, I eventually sour on these guys after I keep my eye on them for three or four seasons, and, and nothing really happens, and we don't see any real growth or any uh, strong signs of a breakout. Still interesting about Norris: forty-three career big league starts across five seasons, never had a positive value season, and his projection is for an ERA way closer to five than it is to four, a WHIP closer to one fifty than it is to one twenty-five. I don't know about you, Nick, but I'm going to take a hard pass on uh, on Daniel Norris. Yeah, me too. That's the Daniel Norris I know and love, and I think he's going to stay right there this this current season. Uh, and if uh, uh, he's to me, he's not worth taking a chance on. 
In New York, some bullpen news, again injury-related. The Yankees announcing setup ace Dellen Betances is going to start the season on what we used to call the DL, and I guess we're going to have to get used to calling it the IL. He's got a pitching shoulder impingement, and impingement's one of those words I don't know that I know what it means, but it's some kind of problem and it's not good news. Matt Dodge covers the Yankees for BaseballHQ.com. What is going on with Dellen Betances, and uh, is it serious? Well, you know, we don't know right now. Um, his treatment plan has started with anti-inflammatories and some days off. Uh, no timetable set for his return. Um, already was behind schedule because his son was born during spring training, so he only had 3.1 innings to date. So if this turns out to be nothing, once the pain is gone, he might need some work in the minors or some extended spring training before he can rejoin the team. On the positive side, uh, I've seen uh, some things in the press that say that this that Dylan Batasas doesn't always have pain to start the, the season, but he never starts fast in spring training, uh, that this is kind of normal for a slow start. But the pain is something that I think is very worrisome uh, in this particular year. Assuming Dylan Batanzas misses some time, what is the shakedown on a bullpen shakeup? Matt Dodge says that Adam Adovino and Chad Green will move up in the right-handed bullpen pecking order. Uh, that could create some additional playing time opportunities for Tommy Canley. Uh, and Stephen Tarpley. Uh, Canley had his own shoulder problems in 2018 and couldn't get back to the magical 13.9 dom and 5.9 command he threw in 2017. Tarpley made a major league debut in September 2018, a call-up, 13 strikeouts, 9 innings pitched after a 1.94 ERA and 69 innings in the upper minors. So both are having very good springs, so they might be ready to fill uh, Batanza's lost innings. Uh, Ottavino, in particular, steps up to join Zach Britton as a likely saved beneficiary if uh, Rolda Chapman should get injured or need a night off, uh, and uh, or if uh, manager Aaron Boone decides to play matchups. Staying with the Yankees, Nick, they added some rotation depth by signing lefty Gio Gonzalez to a minor league deal. Their rotation, of course, compromised already by injuries to CC Sabathia and especially right-handed ace Luis Severino. Matt Dodge again with the coverage. Uh, how much should we be looking at the data to identify geometrics? <laughs> it's not not clear if, uh, how, and when uh, Gonzalez will contribute to the Yankees. As we said, it was a minor league contract, and they're looking to see if it's someone they want to add to their rotation. News reports out of New York have mentioned pretty much everyone uh, this side of Ron Guidry to help out. Uh, Domingo German had 86 innings last year with the Yankees. His calling card was a strikeout, 102 punchouts, a dom near 11 strikeouts per nine, also controlled walks. Uh, this spring in 11 and two-thirds innings, 18 strikeouts against only two walks. Uh, we still have him projected on the outside looking in with only 44 projected innings, but uh, uh, the, the forecaster said this might be a good time to buy, buy low on Domingo German. Uh, I think that's a good uh, good piece of advice. Uh, uh, Jonathan Losasia looked terrific in four starts after coming up last June, but he came up with a sore shoulder and he was shut down. Uh, another guy with a lot of strikeouts, well supported by first pitch strike and swinging strike rates as well as ground ball percentage, but an elevated hit rate, 39% hit rate, uh, made his decimals look ugly. 5.11 ERA, 1.54 whip, and he hasn't looked that sharp in the spring. Uh, 10 earned runs, 7 walks, and 12 innings pitched. Um, Louis Sessa has a mid-90s fastball, but doesn't get very many strikeouts, with a career dom under 7. Also the most experienced with over 150 big league innings. He's pitched pretty well so far in the spring. 13 strikeouts, 1 walk, and 13 innings pitched. Boy, uh, it's... 
it's like each of them has something to recommend them and something not to recommend them, and it uh, makes it a very difficult way to go. Depending on when your draft is, I think wait and see here a, a little bit. Yeah, I think you, you may, may, may want to wait and see. Uh, you may If you don't have to draft this weekend, if you're closer to the middle of the week, we may know by then what they're doing with Gio Gonzalez and whether – uh, they're going to make this into a uh, to go to buy the contract and put him on the major league roster, or whether he's going to remain on a minor league contract for a while until they see what the needs are. And interestingly, we were talking about the opener strategy. I've heard some scuttlebutt that the Yankees are considering using the opener strategy on days when they didn't have a true top starter ready to go. How might that work? Well, you had a story in the New York Post in February. Aaron Boone said that uh, if they had health problems in the rotation, and they do, uh, the opener could be in play for them. Uh, and a report in the New York Daily News said the Yankees uh, uh, may use Gonzalez the same way the Brewers used him last season. They started him, but a very quick hook turning the game over to the bullpen. So, Joe uh, uh, Gonzalez may be uh, the experienced opener that the Yankees are, are looking at to uh, begin using that strategy early on this season. And it's not exactly the same thing, is it? If the if you put a starter out there, leaving him in until the first sign of trouble is a slightly different philosophical approach to how you're doing things than to say, I'm just going to put that relief pitcher in there for four outs or five outs until we hit the first left-hander or right-hander in the batting order who could be trouble, and then we'll get the bulk guy in. So it's not, it doesn't sound like it's quite as uh, organized or quite as uh, structured a way to approach it, but it is a new way to, to approach it, just saying, look, we know this guy can start and he's somewhat effective when he when he gets rolling but if at the first sign of trouble we have to get him out of there because once that first sign of trouble hits it's going to be trouble right right i you know the the with the yankees depth of uh, they have in their bullpen uh doing that sort of thing with someone like Joe gonzalez makes a whole lot of sense uh let him pitch as long as he can go into the game uh uh, but but the first sign he's getting tired, the first sign the batters have figured him out for today, uh, get him out of there and bring in that bullpen. Uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I guess a lot of it depends on what you know about his ability to get that third time through the order. And I wonder if even in a Gio Gonzalez type situation, they'd be better off letting him start by pitching to the seventh place guy in the order and get his kind of get his wheels under him during his, during his appearance and then deal with the... Uh, a lesser part of the order a little more often before making the change. I don't know. That's all pretty interesting. It is very interesting. I mean, you know, you've got to remember these, these guys, these major league hitters are very smart. They'll figure out, they can figure out watching a pitcher the first time and the second time, how he's doing that particular day and what he's throwing and what works and what doesn't work and can be sitting on those pitches the third time through. So it makes it, it, it really is a, there's, there's a lot um, of value, I think, and uh, letting pitchers have less exposure uh, in a particular ball game uh, before the hitters can uh, can quite figure out what's going on. Finally, Nick, uh, Seattle has started the season with a couple of wins. Uh, everybody's feeling pretty good about the Mariners after two games. But there are a lot of dominoes rattling around in Seattle. There are three situations. Uh, first and most importantly, Kyle Seeger, the third baseman, has had hand surgery. Uh, second, the outfielder Malik Smith is out with a strained elbow. And third, Ichiro Suzuki announced his retirement after Thursday's game in Japan. Our own Jock Thompson, when he's not lounging on a beach somewhere, covers the American League West for playing time tomorrow. How do all these situations shake out for playing time in Seattle? Well, you know, Ichiro, uh, Suzuki's retirement was not a significant development because uh, 
he was going to be a last chance option for the Mariners anyway. And my guess is they knew he was going to retire uh, in Japan anyway. I mean, I'm sure this they, this was all planned and they knew what was going on and they were planning for it as they headed into the season. Uh, Smith should be ready to play sometime in April, but that's no sure thing. Uh, that could have a, a tremendous fantasy impact because here's a guy who's going to steal a lot of bases. His absence might seem to open up some playing time uh, for Braden Bishop, who plays a defensive replacement in Japan, but more likely gives Jay Bruce some added reps in the outfield uh, early on in the season. And that's where things get interesting because Seeger's hand surgery looks like it'll keep him out until at least June. Reports out of Seattle say they will want to look at Ryan Healy, who used to be a third baseman, although really a pretty awful third baseman defensively. Okay, so if Healy moves to third base because Seager is out and Bruce is getting reps in the outfield because Malik Smith is out, geez, I hate to sound like Lou Costello here, but who's on first? Yeah, right. Who's on first is, is the question. Um, D.H. Egbert Encarnacion is now projected to get some first base time, uh, and uh, that might be a bit of a reprieve for Dan Vogelbach, whose short-term outlook looks brighter if his left-handed bat keeps, uh, keeps, keeps going from another good spring training. Uh, he's out of options and might actually threaten Healy's playing time some. But neither Encarnacion nor Vogelback especially is renowned for slick fielding either. How do the Mariners manage that crowd of people? Well, and the crowd is the crowd is, is becoming more of a crowd. I, uh, Jay Bruce clanked an easy throw playing first in Japan, so he's not the savior over there either. Uh, Jock says that things could unclutter pretty quickly if the Mariners can find someone to take Encarnacion and his contract off their hands. Uh, but that doesn't seem imminent. Uh, I guess Encarnacion plays a fair bit at first. Vogelbach is the DH versus right-handed pitching. Uh, the rest is hot-hand sort of stuff with some attention to defensive performance. And with all of that in mind, what happens if uh, Ryan Healy simply can't handle the leather work at third? Well, you know, I'm tempted to follow the who's on first script of that one by saying, I don't know. Uh, but there are a couple of names who might be in the mix. Shortstop Tim Beckham could figure, could move to third. If the uh, off-season trade acquisition, J.P. Crawford figures out how to hit a Triple H Tacoma, so that's certainly an option uh, down the road. And if not, it could be really frightening if you if you've got Encarnacion at first and Ryan Healy at third. All of a sudden, any ground ball that's hit near the corners, you, you have to be pretty concerned if you're a Mariners pitcher or an owner of a Mariners pitcher that they're just simply not going to be able to make the plays. Right, and if I'm uh, if I'm a hitter, I'm looking to hit the ball, hit a ground ball toward third base or first base very definitely with those two guys out there. I wonder if it affects the shift any. You know, the the idea of the shift is that you force them to hit it to a fielder, but what if you're forcing them to hit it to a fielder who can't field? Right, yeah, right. <laughs> that really makes you worry about the shift, doesn't it? Because it's more likely the ball is going to hit, be hit toward the center of the diamond where the shifter guy uh, might not be able to field it at all. Yeah, it's an interesting situation. We'll have to keep our eyes peeled on that. Uh, of course, there's always the possibility, as you mentioned, J.P. Crawford, a shortstop, puts enough bat on ball at AAA Tacoma that he maybe figures out a, a way to get himself back into the lineup. Then that would move things around and make it ever, make them all a little bit stronger. But if that happens, if they, if they have to move uh, Tim Beckham from short to third, what do they do with Ryan Healy? He's still not a good fielder. Does he play first, and that pushes everybody else around? There's a lot of moving parts here, and it uh, we, we have to pay pretty close attention to it as we come into the uh, start of the regular season. Yeah, very definitely. A whole lot of moving parts we're talking about in this instance. Well, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out with the American League and the National League. Uh, 
why don't you go and uh, have a lozenger and we'll talk to you again uh, in two weeks time because you're off to Disney next week. All right. Sounds good, Patrick. Thank you. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and normally our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio today doing double duty. When we return, it's our Baseball HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer and master notes coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In playing time tomorrow, analyst Brian Slack looks at the National League West, including the Padres' catching situation, the Diamondbacks' rotation, and the Giants' center field battle. In Facts and Flukes, analyst Brian Rudd does a performance check on five players, including Nolan Arenado, Tucker Barnhart, and Michael Waka. And in Rotisserie Gaming, analysts Michael Waddell and Dave Adler have a two-part look at the Santana plan for starting pitchers. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, and roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers. We have fantasy market analysis and tools like the player projections, the daily dashboard, leading indicators, all the content and tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call BaseballHQ.com the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have Master Notes. And leading off, it's our frequent flyer commentary where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer because they could be available in your end game or reserve and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyer is Miami starting pitcher Caleb Smith, and here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. He's an unheralded late bloomer, according to the 2019 Baseball Forecaster, and he's moving up 2019 draft boards quickly. Of course, we're talking about 27-year-old Miami Marlins left-handed starter Caleb Smith. You may remember Caleb Smith as a minor league all-star in the Yankees system prior to an off-season trade in November 2017 to the Marlins. Or you may remember Caleb Smith as setting the school record for strikeouts at Sam Houston State University prior to being drafted by the Yankees in the 14th round of the 2013 draft. Either way, Caleb Smith may be an important name to remember on draft day. Here's why. Caleb Smith's career 319 ERA in the minors, including a 255 ERA at AAA, points to positive traction at the major league level. Perhaps more telling is that Caleb Smith maintained an elite swinging strike rate of 12% in 2018 at the big league level. That's Clayton Kershaw and Steven Strasburg territory. However, to be clear, don't compare Caleb Smith's pitchability to that of Clayton Kershaw or Steven Strasburg on the basis of one metric. They're in totally different categories. Well, except for Clayton Kershaw's F, health reliability grade, Caleb Smith can definitely be compared there after missing the second half of the 2018 season due to a grade 3 lat strain. That's why Caleb Smith, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available late in your 2019 draft. 
Yet, despite the F health reliability grade assigned to Caleb Smith by BaseballHQ.com, there are several reasons for optimism in 2019. One, perhaps first and foremost, is that Caleb Smith has a realistic chance of cracking the Miami Marlins' starting rotation on opening day. He struck out 13 in nine innings of work this spring while only allowing one earned run total. Another reason for optimism is that BaseballHQ.com is projecting over one strikeout per inning pitched in 2019. More specifically, we're projecting a dominance rate of 9.2 strikeouts per nine in 2019. Remember, we at BaseballHQ.com consider a dominance rate of nine strikeouts per nine or higher to be elite, according to our benchmarks, and Caleb Smith's projected dominance rate of 9.2 strikeouts per nine would certainly qualify. In fact, Caleb Smith's dominance rate of 10.2 strikeouts per nine as rookie season proves he has swing and miss capability. That's capability with a K in Caleb Smith's case, and that's a W in your win column. Would you consider adding Miami Marlins starting pitcher Caleb Smith as our frequent flyer for this week? For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I want to talk about my Tout Wars American League-only auction. In case you missed the news bulletins, I was in Tout Wars on the weekend in New York, a tough competition in the American League-only auction, a bunch of very fine and experienced players with many titles under their belts, plus me with many jelly donuts under mine. Now my task is to talk about it, and since I'm never sure how to organize these post-draft discussions, I'm just going to keep it loose, tell you who I drafted, offer some observations on how it all went. Just so you know, my budget started with $40 and $35 slots for my top hitters and $30, $25 for my main starters. I also allocated a $9 slot for a closer. I set my Rotolab draft software to a 69-31 hit-pitch split, which is pretty usual for this league. I also tweaked what Rotolab calls the top-middle distribution sliders, which sounds like adjusters on the machine that injects the jelly into the donuts. I adjusted the two sliders, one for hitters, one for pitchers, to well towards the stars and scrubs end until I ended up with Mike Trout showing at a $51 value and Chris Sale at $39. I also got a pretty decent lemon-filled crawler. There's a longer version of this Master Notes at the Baseball HQ site and in the Friday e-newsletter in case you want to read even more about this. But since you asked, I'll talk about my team in order of acquisition with some brief comments. My first pick at number six was third baseman, second baseman, Jose Ramirez. I budgeted $40 for a foundational five-category player to start my team, and Ramirez suited that. Yeah, it was $2 over budget, but he was $3 under his $45 value on Rotolab. I also liked the position versatility, and in fact, it came in handy later in the draft. Next, second baseman Jonathan Villar. I picked him up for $28. He wasn't really a target for me. I have him in another draft, but I liked the price. I think or hope that the HQ projection of 45 stolen bases could be low by as many as 10 or 15 more. My next pickup was shortstop Glaber Torres of the Yankees for 25 bucks. I was also trying to prioritize my infield spots because outfield looked a little thicker with talent. Torres is a solid four-category guy in a pretty stacked lineup. And he's going to get some stolen bases too, 10 projected, and that'll help. 
My next pick for $30, starting pitcher Trevor Bauer. I was actually hoping to get Garrett Cole in my $30 slot for a top starter, but he went for $35, and that was a little rich for me. Blake Snell had gone before Bauer had for $30, so I hoped maybe I would get a few bucks off Bauer's price. I didn't, and then two picks later I got my second starter, Jose Barrios, for $25. This was my first outright value loss, but I really like Barrios, and I think he's a much better bet than Mike Clevenger, who actually went for a dollar more at $26. By the way, I was really leaning towards American League Central pitchers to fill these top slots. 19 games each against Detroit, Chicago, and Kansas City? That has to help your numbers. My last big dollar pick... Andrew Benintendi for $33. He was the last top-flight all-rounder on the board. I was in good shape budget-wise at the point his name got called, so I felt like I could be aggressive enough to use Benintendi to fill my $35 budget slot. Saved me 2 bucks on the slot, although I ended up losing about $3 on the value. Next came catcher Mitch Garver for $6. $6 for a $1 hitter with just enough on-base percentage to make him a little less awful than the other $6 $1 catchers. Next, I got Shane Green for 9 bucks. I did okay in last year's draft buying Fernando Rodney for $7. I know Green's decimals are going to stink, but Detroit's few saves should start out in his ledger. Someone at the draft said the worry would be Green getting traded, which made me think his unimpressive stats might actually be a help. After all, which Major League Baseball playoff contender looking for bullpen help wants to trade for a guy like Green when there are going to be so many better options out there? Next came outfielder Max Kepler for 15 bucks. I wrote a long Facts and Fluke spotlight piece on Kepler a couple of years back. Ironically, I said at that time that Kepler was unlikely to ever realize his potential. Eh, what do I know? Next, Avisail Garcia in the outfield for 7 bucks. The pickings were getting slimmer here, and I needed an outfielder with power. I thought Garcia could provide it, and Baseball HQ has him as a $13 player, so there's an easy path to profit here. Next came Mike Leake for 5 bucks. This was about the time I had those two $5 starting pitcher slots open and some $1 and $2 slots for everybody else that was still available. I didn't want to pay $5 for any $1 pitchers, so I decided I would just bid on every pitcher who came out as long as he was projected over 5 bucks, and I just hoped I'd get two of them. I did do that, and Leake was the first. Next came Justin Bohr. For $11, I like this pick in a sneaky way. I needed a first baseman, and I sure didn't want Chris Davis. Bohr's power from the left side has crushed right-handed pitching the last few years, and that could help him in Anaheim, where they've also lowered the home run line in right field. Next came Mike Fires For 5 bucks, my second $5 starter. I thought this was an okay pick. Then he got off to such a great start in Japan, giving up five runs and six base runners in three innings, including that home run to Domingo Santana. For a buck, I picked up Ryan Tapera, the setup guy in Toronto. If Toronto falls out of the race, as I expect they will, I think they might want to dangle their closer, Ken Giles, and someone has to step up and get the saves, right? I thought Tapera was that guy, but now I read he's come down with elbow soreness, so he might be the first player I end up dumping in 2019. Next, catcher Kevin Plowecki, Cleveland, for 2 bucks. 2 bucks for a catcher who's actually projected to return negative value. Under the circumstances, though, he's still a good buy. That's the way the catcher situation is these days. 
Next, I picked up three straight starting pitchers, Matt Shoemaker for a dollar, Ivan Nova for two dollars, and Irvin Santana for a buck. These are kind of typical endgame dart throws, but you'll notice two of the three are in the American League Central, and Shoemaker has a track record, when he stays healthy, of being a very effective pitcher. He's striking out a lot of guys in spring training. I can start him as a streamer against Baltimore and other weaker teams. I think I'm going to have to avoid him when he's pitching against uh, the New York Yankees and Bostons of the world. If any one of these pitchers pans out, I'm in pretty good shape. If two of them pan out, I'm really liking my chances. My next pick was G-Man Choi, a utility player only for 5 bucks in Tampa. Not long before the auction, I read that Choi had been named the regular first baseman in Tampa. I thought that could help my roster because I had filled my corner infield spot with a real long shot, as you will soon see. Baseball HQ projects Choi to hit 20 home runs with a three thirty-five on-base percentage, and those are numbers that will really help for 5 bucks. My next player, Hector Rondon, the setup man in Houston for a buck, I had to put him in my swingman position. In Tout Wars, instead of having five outfielders, we have four plus a swingman who can be an offensive player or a pitcher. Not many Touts fill the swingman role with pitchers, including me. I threw him out for a buck because I thought someone was sure to bid, since Rondon is next in line if anything goes awry with Roberto Osuna closing in Houston. Instead, crickets. I needed a middle infielder, but I nominated third baseman Hunter Dozier just to move the nominating stick along and get someone else to spend the extra buck. I got crickets. I had to move Jose Ramirez to middle infield so I could stick Dozier in at third. I know his projection is for a $4 profit at a $1 price, but I don't see how he can get any value at all. My least favorite buy of this draft. Now I still needed a corner. And you remember how I jumped up on Justin Bohr because I didn't want to have to look at a guy like Chris Davis. Well, guess what? I got Chris Davis. I nominated him, and there was even a one-bid skirmish. I ended up paying $3. There was nobody else left, and HQ says 20-plus home runs, but the rest of his line looks like Nightmare City. Choi will soon be eligible to step in at corner infield, or maybe Davis will regress all the way back to 2013 when he hit 53 home runs and had a 370 on on-base percentage, or 2015, I'd be happy with 47 home runs and a 361 OBP. Then I'll win the Lotto Max here in Ontario, and I'll ride my magic unicorn off to happy land. My last pick, outfielder Jorge Bonifacio for a buck. Yeah, I know. In the end game, I thought a $1 player with 300 projected at-bats is kind of like getting a $20 player with 6,000 at-bats. Right? Right? Eh, maybe not. As it turns out, it didn't matter because on Tuesday he got sent down to AAA, so I will start the season with an opening on my roster that I'll have to fill from a very thin free agent pool. So that's my team. As always happens, I project to be near the top of the table in Rotolab because Rotolab uses HQ projections. But of course, everyone's going to finish at the top of their league using their own projections. I am heartened a little bit that both of the projection systems at onroto.com have me a solid third within easy range of the leaders. Of course, other projections, they'll give other results. There's a long way to go. I'm hoping to have a good time doing it. Have a good draft if you have a draft left to do. I'm done drafting for 2019, so it's time for me to go get that lemon-filled crawler. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Masternotes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Masternotes delivered to your email inbox in the weekly free Baseball HQ e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and you can sign up.
You can also read Master Notes for free at the Baseball HQ website. And, of course, we have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March the 22nd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 13 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentator was Harold Nichols, and our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to iTunes or Stitcher or Pocket Cast, wherever you catch your pods. And if they'll let you, leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Tuesday with another edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Happy anniversary, Lisa, and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.